Welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole presents a space podity. In this season of Pod Like a Hole, we are going to take you all the way through David Bowie's discography by using the magical diamond dice. In uh, season one, we talked about Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails, and in season two, we're talking about the DB, the man himself, the Bowie. Uh, So... On uh, last episode, we talked about, well, the last episode proper, we talked about Lodger, which was Bowie's 13th record. We're going to just skip over Scary Monsters, because we already covered that, and we're going to go right to the next one, which is Let's Dance, released in 1983. Um, With me, as always, is my co-hosts, cohorts in crime. I've got Stephen Earle. People on the street. Bada be bop. Okay. Um, and then I've got uh, Eric Anderson. Say hello, Eric. Hello, darling. That's right. Uh, so, I have to ask you guys Have you ever danced with the devil in the serious moonlight? Because Bowie <laughs> sure has, and he's going to tell us all about it. I've been sitting on that one all day. Oh, it's really, it's good. That's good. And and to answer your question, um, no, I haven't had the pleasure. Maybe someday. Did you? Well, Mark, did you work today? You were able to come up. I know. Wow, wow. you you came up with that on a work day. I am so <laughs> impressed with you. You needed some more responsibilities <laughs> at work. <laughs> Nobody should get off. Nobody should clock out with a good idea like that. That's yeah. That's I mean, it's a credit to your good idea, but also you know, you know, you need to work a little harder. I know. I mean, the creativity—it's always flowing, guys. It just comes naturally. Um. So yes, as we had said, we're going to talk about some serious moonlight, and uh, we're not talking about Mac, uh, the McDonald's Crescent Moon Man. I think he was called Mac Mac Tonight. Yes, the, uh, the, the, the inspiration for like half of Guillermo de Toro's movies. <laughs> and, uh, and we've talked about him so many times on this podcast. It's <laughs> wonderful. It's like, it's outrageous. Yeah, yeah it's so good. <sighs> yeah, anytime I think of like serious moonlight, I just think of Mac tonight. So it is what it is, folks. Um, but before we get into... Uh, I'm serious, uh, you guys. That actually was played by Doug Jones from... Uh, the it Gil- really Gil- was. Th- that's exactly right. But before we get into the uh, the the details uh, of dancing... But first, housekeeping. Uh, no Nine Inch News, but there is some Bowie Bulletin. So we've been talking about it every episode because they've been dropping one song a week, but the Is It Any Wonder EP is now on the streaming streaming services, and it's um, it's uh, Bowie's 97 band. Um, 
his uh, outside earthling era um re-recording old songs to machine songs and and and, and older older tracks as well um all the way back to like uh, hunky dory manners of the world um and we will actually i think we should cover that when we cover earthling or outside because it's that it's that band so um yeah so that's out and, and, and nothing for nine inch nails um obviously they're holed up in the studio working on something wonderful but uh but nothing there you know what else is wonderful today i got an email that we have a new patreon subscriber and that's uh matt matt d thank you for being a subscriber i'm glad i don't know if it was uh one of the grocery store jingles or one of eric's chopped and screwed ads that put you over but uh we appreciate it <laughs> by the way did you notice you that, good content. that that tom steyer's death rattle was dancing to back that ass up and that was one of my uh one of my jingles so i'm i'm, I'm very yes. happy to be a part of that political movement well we've been mark and i behind your back have been calling you the tom steyer of this podcast so oh. it's fine oh well better <laughs> better than the bloomberg better than the bloomberg <laughs> yeah no we, it, <laughs> the bloomberg is the guy we tried to invite on this podcast it didn't re- return mark's emails <laughs> um so, and, uh, yes. And thank you for subscribing and we'll keep bringing you episodes like this one or last week's under pressure or the recent lodger episode, all the good content and whatever lies for all of us in season three. So, but season three is a while away. Yes, a year before 1984 was 1983. What was going on in the world in 1983? Well, all of us were like two years old, maybe three years old. We were we were but infants, toddlers running around, shitting in our diapers. But what was the world doing in 1983? Well, you could buy a house for eighty-two thousand dollars. You could uh, make $21,000 a year if you were an average working human being. 21000 That's right. That's twice a teacher's pay. <laughs> God damn it. Every time. Just be, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, 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 just shitting on public servants, Mark. We can't all be a cog of capitalism, of the capitalism machine, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's, there's more rewarding things than money in this life. Uh, a gallon of a gallon of petrol would cost you a dollar twenty-five. Uh, you could buy a Dodge Ram truck for five thousand six hundred dollars. Look at that. Uh, a lot of news. Not uh, a lot of uh, a little bit of news this year. Obviously, we had uh, America had uh, Reagan as a president. Um, we uh, listen. We invaded Grenada as. Uh, Listen, there's a whole story about it, but I, I 5,000 Marines were sent to an island um, after the government was overthrown by in a coup by Cuban uh, by Cuban military. But I love hearing um, Robert Downey Jr. explain it in um, Natural Born Killers. Yeah, he was uh, there when the shit went down at, at, at Granada. Yeah, <laughs> he was indeed. Um and then, and then later, I mean, that guy, yeah, hard life. Later, Granada's one thing, and then he was there for Batongaville. So, 
<laughs> he was. He had a little bit of PTSD. Uh, he absolutely did. Um, listen, a little thing called Star Wars Initiative was created by Reagan, the uh, satellite missile defense. Um, but what's more important is Mario Brothers debuted in 1983. Um, that would have been, been that would have been the that would have been the original Mario Brothers, not the Super Mario Brothers. You got it. You got it. The, J- the Japanese arcade game. Uh, yeah, you're, you're underground. You're jumping around on pipes and whatnot. Yeah, sure. Single. I mean, obviously, single screen. In, yeah. In '85, we got the NES and Super Mario Brothers debuted on it. But and I and, and I got that maybe a year later. But um, I remember, like in the late '80s, I was at the Mine Shaft, which was the miniature golf and arcade in Rancho Cordova, not far from my house. And I saw Mario Brothers, the arcade game, and I was like, "What? Some kind of prequel to Super Mario Brothers? You can run a across these." That. You could run across this platform and then loop around to the other side. Oh, look, it's a Goomba. Yeah. So the first time I encountered that game, it was similar, but it was under much more dire problems. Um, I don't know what it was that day. Maybe I had a migraine. I think I had a migraine, but I was like a, a 10 year old. And I, I had to go to a Chuck E. Cheese for a kid's birthday party. And my head hurt so bad that when I had opened my eyes, uh, I just saw like white light and, um, Oh boy, it was miserable. And, uh, I, I, like my parents weren't available to take me home. And so for whatever reason, I was able to, uh, the, the, the lighting in the video game area, it hurt less. And I, I stayed over there and I, that's when I realized I was like, Oh, there's a weird Mario game. That's not like the one I have at home. Interesting. Yeah. Wild. Um, so uh, a couple things. Uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, wins a landslide victory in the UK. Um, for the first mobile phones. Oh, man, man. Uh, fucking old Thatcher would love what's going on in the UK now, wouldn't she? Wouldn't and she would. I think she would, yeah. actually. I think she would. Um, that, that she'd, probably, she'd love what's going on here in the United States as well. God damn it. Yep, it's true. It's true. Oh, Mags. Mags wasn't the uh, the sweetheart that uh, that someone wants you to believe. Um, listen, uh, the mobile first mobile phones dropped by Motorola Company, not Apple. Sorry, sorry, Mark. Never the first out of the gate, but always the ones to perfect it. <laughs> it's a great there you slogan. Go. Great slogan. God damn! It sounds like that guy said that before many times. <laughs> Oh. He's also he's also training uh, Jack to say that, which is weird. That he's having his kids combat each other. The biggest toy this year that absolutely just resulted in crowds mobbing toy stores was the Cabbage Patch Kids. Did you guys ever have a Cabbage Patch Kid? No, that wasn't really my jam. Uh, I generally uh, around that time, I think I did have at least one in my lifetime, but, uh, that was my sister's game. I was not a player in that one. Yeah. My mom had one around the house for some reason. It was really weird. That's my story. <laughs> Strange doll. My wife had three from childhood that she still somehow had. And then a family friend, when we had kids donated another three. So we somehow have like six or seven, just like bouncing around our house. Um, cabbage patch kids. Oh boy. 
you know, Garbage Pail Kids. Great film. Worth your time. Worth your time. They have a great rap in that movie. My uber Christian next door neighbors did not like when I would bring Garbage Pail Kids over to their house to <laughs> share with their kid. They were not fans of that. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so, pop, uh, pop culture. Here we go. The final episode of MASH airs. 125 million people watch that bad boy. That was a big one. Good old MASH. That's yep. right. That's a big one for TV. That record, that record held for decades until I think a Super Bowl finally broke it or some shit. I don't know. Yeah. Um, not a lot of TV information here, but movies. Got a lot of movies here. We got Tootsie. Tootsie. Good time. It's a good movie. It's a good, good time. Holds up. Not bad. There's, despite the cross-dressing, there's not a lot. There's nothing really problematic about it. it, it, it the themes. The themes hold up. Um, Dabney Coleman, Bill Murray, Dabney Coleman, Bill Murray. So good. So good. Um, you got a James Bond movie this year. You got Octopussy. Not a good one. One of the worst. No, that's all right. He's like, he dresses up like a clown and he's in some circus for half the movie. It's not good. It's not, I don't know. I, I hate to tell you. You, you just, good. you just don't get it. You just don't get it. That's uh, all the metaphor. That you don't get. But this was the year, and we talked about this in another episode. This was the year that that the fake Bond movie came out with Sean Connery called Never Say Never Again. That was this year. That one's weirdly watchable just for what it is. There's a video game sequence where he, where Bond versus Max von Sydow are battling in virtual reality. It's very strange. Worth watching. Um, listen. Flashdance came out. Um, I don't know if you guys are a fan of uh, that Jerry Bruckheimer film, but it did come out. It dropped. It was a big, huge hit. We talked about Superman 3. We actually talked about Superman movies for about 20 minutes a couple episodes ago, so I'm going to skip right past that. Um, <laughs> for... No, no, I want to... I, I changed... I, 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 you know, I didn't have rankings at the time. I have them now. I've watched okay. all the movies since then. No, you, you inspired haven't. me. I'm... <laughs> you don't know uh, that. You don't know what I do. Ah, Trading Places dropped this year, which is a pretty pretty good time. Pretty good time. That's yes. a good one. That's a, a Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy, right? You got it. You got it. Um, and then of course, Return of the Jedi. Return yeah. of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi. Mark, it's, what do you think about Return of the Jedi? It's got its problems. Uh, it's definitely... When I was younger, uh, one of my favorite parts of Return of the Jedi was uh, the first half at Jabba's Palace, which had nothing to do with the Empire. I just liked seeing them all work together um, and uh, seeing all the little creature effects. And uh, over time, and then right after they got off uh, Tatooine, and they go into Endor, it kind of turns into somewhat of a snooze fest. And the ending is somewhat ridiculous. Uh, you know, you got teddy bears overthrowing the Empire with logs and rocks. Um, oh, wow. But wow. It's, it's, it's still a great movie. All the stuff with the Emperor and the throne room. Uh, that's good stuff. That's some good, good stuff. Um, but it's 
probably if I had to rank the original trilogy, it's my least favorite of the original trilogy. Um, it goes Empire, New Hope, Return. Um, but that's just me. I, what do you I, think? I agree with your ranking, but I don't. I don't. I don't have any really problems with this movie. I don't, the the Ewoks defeating the Empire doesn't actually bother me so much um, because sometimes you know indigenous cultures need to defeat the uh, industrialization. They 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 need, they need to take Exa- it down. I'm exactly, fine. and then Lucas then rehashed that for Phantom Menace when he had the uh, the Gungans. <laughs> uh, <God. laughs> the Roger Roger robots. Oh God damn it! Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I I I I love the pacing of Return of the Jedi. I love that you never are staring at a scene for more than three minutes before you get a sideswipe and you get some kind of other jump to some kind of crazy shit. I uh, I enjoy I enjoy sure. Jedi quite a bit. I I I agree with you that it's the that it's three in that in the original series. But I don't I don't have a lot of problems with it. I have a problem a lot of problems with the um the George Lucas edits with the uh, terrible song sure. in Java's palettes. And uh, oh boy. Oh yeah, the Nintendo 64 song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and oh, they took away the Ewok celebration song in the they special did. edition. Yeah, which that's no, that's one of history's it, greatest tragedies. It is. Yup, yup. Yeah. It is. Oh, it's had, a jam. My, my my parents actually took me to see that uh, when it was released. So I was I was three, and um, really foggy memory. I think it was at the uh, the Harding Theater in Roseville, which doesn't exist anymore. That was like an old old Roseville right around for from where we we lived at Mark. Uh, yeah, I know where that's at. Yep. Yeah. In that now plaza. Probably, yeah. Who knows what it is now? It's probably you know fucking a yeah, church or something. Um, but I man, I'm fucking the ranker scared the shit out of me as a three year old. I am. Oh god, yeah, no <laughs> joke. That thing is quite something. Um, yeah. But it's still Return of the Jedi. I mean, I I know that it's better than anything in the prequels. Even though I have a really soft spot for Revenge of the Sith, because um, it's just Looney Tunes and it's uh, just a lot of fun. Um, and it's also kind of heartbreaking because Ewan McGregor really does act his heart out at that last scene. Um, and, but it's just too bad Hayden Christensen didn't really show up. Um, This year uh, was something. Um, you had uh, people like Phil Collins, Nelton John putting out stuff. Pink Floyd had something. I bet you guys know what came out in '83. I don't. The final cut. Oh yeah, we've we've referenced that a few times, or, or you guys have. But let's get back to our friend Phil Collins. So Phil Collins is big in this year, huh? Right, right, definitely. Um, yeah, I think it's worth mentioning because. It's- this is definitely David Bowie's Phil Collin phase is what we're getting close to here. It starts tonight. And this is not quite the Phil Collins phase, but this is what leads to it. 
Yeah, and he would he would refer to this era as his Phil Collins years. Although no jacket required wouldn't come out till 1985. Just 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 saying that. Um, so uh, the police dropped every breath you take. Um, the police is obviously a huge band, and I think I respect them in their their place in the pantheon. Um, I'm not crazy about them. How do you guys feel about the police? Well, I'm not crazy about the police, but they have some good songs. I probably could study their music better. Um, I mean, I respect Stuart Copeland, who later worked with uh, Les Claypool in Oysterhead. But I will give the police this. Every breath you take was used in the movie Cat's Eye. And as a 39-year-old man today, that movie still scares the shit out of me. So, <laughs> yes, there you go. Mark, what do you think? The police is just, uh, my dad was really into Sting, um, not so much the police. So uh, growing up, we were certainly given a healthy dose of his solo records. Dream of the Blue Turtles, uh, Fields of Gold, um, and the others. So, uh, I mean, when I go back and listen to any police, I just can't help but thinking of old Gordon Sumner uh, telling people that... uh, uh, you know, uh, what are some of his bid songs? I, I don't know. It's well, too late for that. Yeah, the the police. What they did is they did. They definitely took a a like reggae, like a, a white European reggae approach to pop music. Um, they weren't the first. The Clash had done it in 1979. To, in my personal opinion, better results, more engaging results, but. Uh, you can't deny charts and people, people love the police. So, well, yeah, as far as, as far as popular music goes, I think the police was good as popular music. Um, a few things. Uh, one, I think that, uh, yeah, uh, Mark's dad, I know why he really appreciated sting. I'll leave it at that. And, um, <laughs> two, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit later about how, some of the music that my dad surrounded me with influenced my opinion of other music that might've not been the same music. And I definitely think Mark's love of Billy Joel's river of dreams comes from his dad's appreciation of sting. Don't you think? I think that's fair. It's possible. It's possible. Um, I mean, I think for old time's sake, uh, we should just drop a little clip of uh, River of Dreams in right about here. In the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep through the desert of the truth to the river so uh, Every time it's better than the last time. It's uh, yes. it's an age. It's a, it's a wine that's been aging in our in our cask. There, there's yeah, a, there's a, yeah, six, six degrees of Kevin Bacon, six degrees of River of Dreams. Hey, what Steve, else? I got, I got to ask I, you, I got to ask you, Steve, how do you feel about Born Again by Black Sabbath? Cause that dropped this year. Oh my God. That's a, that is the, God is Ian Glenn. Ian, is that the Ian Gillen. Yeah. Those albums are, they're tough to get through, man. Uh, yeah, the, the, you have the high highs of uh, Ronnie James Dio's two records right before them, and then Born Again. It's it's. I I think I might have listened to it all the way through one time. Not that good. Gotcha. 
in my opinion, uh, is what is shared by most people. Mm. Uh, Lionel Richie's All Night Long. Not bad. Not That's bad. a pretty good song, I was going to yeah, say. It's not a bad it song. is. It is. <laughs> I feel like, is that the video that has Rodney Dangerfield in it? It's a... It's a... You tell us you're the you're the danger, uh, you know, maniac. <laughs> he's here. like, I've heard of an upside down cake, but this is ridiculous. When they're all dancing on the ceiling, I think I feel like it's that video, but it's fine. Uh, that's all I got. Yeah, look at that. Uh, that's the year in music. Bowie, he's coming off some shit with scary monsters and some other stuff. I think we should dive into where he's at. Well, before we dive into where he's at, we better dive into where somebody landed. In the 1983 World Series, and oh, shit. that person was uh, that would that would have been one of the Washington Redskins. Oh my, yes, they were called the Redskins then. They're called the Redskins now. Really bad. You think they would uh, not 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 do that? But uh, the, the Redskins won their first Super Bowl uh, that year over the Dolphins. So, bully for them, I say. Over in basketball, the Philadelphia 76ers swept the Lakers. That's fine. The Lakers have won many other things. So, good for the Sixers. And uh, over in baseball, Mark, do you know who, oh boy, this is a, you know, last time it was the Orioles and the, um, the Pirates. This is almost as bad. This was uh, the Orioles over the Phillies. Four games to one. Oh, boy. Yeah. Brooks Robinson. Probably yelling at an umpire the whole game. Don't think we're going to see either of them in this year's World Series. Have you uh, no. Have you followed... You and I don't talk about spring training much because, uh, well, we have lives. But... I have been following the reaction to the Astros already at spring training, and it's great. Have you read anything about that? <laughs> I just realized that uh, it's Beanball City. Yeah, they're getting bean, but also, man, the fans are just giving them shit. And if these are the fans at the uh, at, at, at spring training, I can only imagine how it's going to be whenever they play an away game this season. It'll be something. Oh, boy. It is going to be a slaughterhouse. So hopefully... Everyone gets inside the Astros' heads, and even though they shouldn't need the help, the help does help, and the Oakland A's take the division this year. You know, that's the real tragedy here, all right? The Oakland A's had to play the stupid wild card game the last few years because the Astros were always world beaters. And who knows? Maybe without the trash can cheat code, the A's would have won the division, you know? It's all possible. Right. Anyhow, uh, speaking of trash cans, Eric is probably wishing he was in one right now if we don't t- quit talking about sports. So that is all the sports talk. No, it was clearly a great year for sports. Clearly. I'm glad I'm glad we dedicated the time to it. Um, so, 1983. Bowie had uh, released Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, was his last album. Back in 1980. It's been three years. Um, in the middle, he did some stuff. Um, and, and that he, album is yes. the height the height of David Bowie. That's about as good as it gets. But it didn't, you know, exactly light up the charts. It did well, but it, it wasn't it wasn't his most popular album by, you know, any stretch of the imagination. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, I, although I feel like Ash the Ashes kind of cracked cracked the mainstream a bit. People did talk about like he made it was definitely a pop culture moment of him reflecting on himself. And um there's a lot of interviews about Let's Dance where people are referencing scary monsters and um and him talking about how he's taken a step away from that approach. Um but yeah, in in the meantime, he had done a little uh, a few things, right? He done Under Pressure, which we did a little B-side about. Um he had done a soundtrack song for the movie Cat People, which we'll talk about that song. We'll talk about both versions of that song when we get to it. Um, and he had done a little EP uh, for a BBC production of the uh, Ball, um, I guess, opera. It's kind of crazy. And we'll also talk about that in another episode. But... And that that album featured a lot of his players, his his in-house musicians and producers. And then he was ready to try something new, and he had everything lined up with Tony Visconti. Hello, this is Coco. Hey, Coco Schwab, assistant to the stars. It's a me, a Tony V. Oh, um, hello, Tony. Just driving down here. I'm driving down Lexington right now. Um, I'm I, I'm on the way to the studio. Listen, I got it blocked out for three straight months. Okay, I got Dennis. Dennis is back behind the drum set. You know, I got uh, I got Carlos ready to shred on the guitar. We are ready to go. Tony, what are you talking about? Coco, baby. I'm talking about the new David album, the new Bowie. Yeah, we've been planning on it ever since we finished. Uh, our work on uh, scary monsters. <laughs> Let me tell you this: <laughs> what I got in store for this baby. Oh yeah, listen. If the if the record company thought that the ball EP was difficult, <laughs> where do they hear this thing? Tony, I might not get too invested in that. What are you talking about, Coco? Yeah, listen. I I got 50 clocks in the recording studio right now. I'm just gonna record them ticking. That's gonna be the entire backing music track to one of the songs on here. So hey, what I need from you is you just need to let me know when Dave is ready to record, because I'm ready for him. So Tony, that's the thing about this, this recording is we are actually going to go with somebody else. Somebody else? Uh, what do you, you want me to, you want me to give uh, Carlos a pink slip? No, Tony, you. You see, Dave wants to go with a different producer. Uh, what the fuck are you talking about, Coco? Yes, he shared a nice, quiet drink with a Mr. Nile Rogers. Did you just say Nile fucking Rogers? I mean, disco is dead as shit! Um, actually, David recorded a message for me to play for you. Here, let me just put my mobile phone against the speaker of my answering machine. Okay, this is what he had to say. This ought to be rich. Uh, Tony, it's it's David. It's a uh, Sunday evening. I'm sure. I mean, what time is it? Hold on. It's nine thirty. I imagine you're you're probably in the, you know you and the wild turkey are chasing each other around. I'm sure. Um, I just wanted to let you know. I was hoping, I was hoping I'd get you on the phone properly. This seems cowardly. But I'm just going to leave you this message saying we're taking a different direction with the new album. 
fuck you a different direction. Tony, uh, sweetie, he can't hear you. This is a pre-recorded message. I, uh, the avant-garde was fun. The tests and the peppers and the, the interesting time signatures we've been doing. All of the gallivanting in Berlin was great. But right now, I am, I mean, have you checked your bank account lately? I've checked mine. And I think we need to go into a different direction. So, I am going to get chic and work with Niall Rogers on this record. And I think it'll give you the space you need to become a little more grounded. And I think both of us can agree you need some grounding. So if you'd like to call me back and discuss this further, I'm here for you. Goodbye. But actually, he wishes that you wouldn't call him back. Not now. Ah! The coward, of course! Ah, you hear the sound? That is the sound of me taking my zipper down as I am writhing in anger about the hiring of Dial fucking Rogers. And, oh, oh, you hear that? That is me urinating, pissing all over my final copies of Station to Station. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, Thin White Duke. How do you like this thin white dick? Ah, and, uh, oh, that's right. That's right. Oh, pissing all over uh, heroes. Oh, scary monsters. That is what I think of your decision to not go with me. That is what I think about your decision to go with Nile Rogers. And that is what I think about any future work that I don't want to do with David Bowie. Goodbye, Coco. Motherfucker! And Tony Visconti called to make sure they were ready to record, called Coco Schwab. And uh, Coco Schwab gave him the bad news. Bowie had already found another producer. And they'd already they're already they were already balls deep in a new album. Tony Visconti was so pissed off, he didn't talk to Bowie again until Heathen. Yeah, I mean Bowie, listen, he's a god, he's a hero, but he had some uh he had some some moments that weren't weren't the most honorable, and I would say that was uh, a little bit of a stab in the back. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> there's a great story. <laughs> there's a great story as to how Bowie decided to switch producers and jump to Nile Rogers. So Nile Rogers tells it like this: He was hanging out in this club in in uh, somewhere in the UK, uh, and Billy Idol was there. And, and Nile Rogers, and Nile Rogers obviously was from the band Chic. We've talked about him before. He produced Black Tie White Noise, um, and produced a lot. He produced a lot of a lot of great stuff. Well, yeah. Let's talk and, about Nile. Rod- he was a. Let's talk about Nile Rogers for a second. Um, yeah, I think I had a huge effect on pop music. Uh, I mean, if you're going to, I think that Bowie definitely wanted to go more of a pop centric direction. He probably could yes. have picked more obvious uh, producers than Nile Rodgers. I think Nile Rodgers was a happy medium between pop and artistic credibility because any of the uh, like the disco songs we know him for, they're catchy as hell for a reason. He he knew how to do a lot with a little when it came to just like a little guitar jangle, um, you know. 
fucking we are family. Uh, you know, the Freak, La Chic, all that. Uh, you know. Oh God, yeah. yeah. That was that was his yeah. thing, and those, those are good songs. Not to mention, yeah. You know, decades later, get lucky with Daft Punk, one of the catchiest songs of all time. So, I, I think I think it's pretty cool that they they collaborated for this one record. I'm glad that it's just this one album, though. I mean, right. It was not just this one album, wasn't it? Black tie, white noise. Mark, you got it. Yep, uh, Eric, don't bother fixing it in post. I my point still stands. I'm glad it should have been this one album because black tie, white noise definitely was not a return to form. Um, <laughs> but you know, we all know how Tony felt. True. But yeah, no, I just wanted to, you know, Nile Rogers. I can see where David Bowie was coming from, but anyhow, he was at a club. Right. Yeah, and uh, what happened? Yeah. So Nile Rogers was in a club talking to Billy Idol and Billy Idol was hammered and he puked all over the bar. All over, and Nile Rogers like jumped out of the way and he looked around the bar and there was a lonely gentleman in the corner and it was David Bowie just sitting there uh, smoking. And now Rogers needed a new companion because this, this Billy is, Idol is, was making a fucking mess of the place. This is this incredible. Is a real story. Yeah. And I believe it. This is yeah. just like, but... This is just like the three of us when we all started hanging out <laughs> and Eric is Billy Idol. I'm Nile Rogers and Mark is a David Bowie. This is perfect. I love it. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I puked on you a few years after we started. I like, I had to get comfortable with you first, but um, I definitely have puked on you at some point. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah. So he bounced over to Bowie and Bowie's like, yeah, I need it. I, I want to make some hits. I want to make some hits. And you're, you know, and, and they knew a lot of people and they both had a shared love of R&B music and they wanted that to kind of um, inform the album. And uh, that they, they uh, Bowie scooped him up and they uh, started working together. Uh, I believe they recorded this one in Montreux, Switzerland. Correct. And uh, I believe so. Yep. And speaking of Montreux. Well, they, while they were starting pre-production, in 1982, Bowie went to the Jazz Festival in Montreux, and he saw Stevie Ray Vaughan shredding his Texas blues. And Steve, I, I believe you have something to say about that.
yeah, no, this, is, uh, this that is where the fate met, had them both meet each other, and that wasn't even one of the best uh, Steve Ray Vaughan performances. As a matter of fact, after that show, he thought he did bad, but that's what got him and uh, David Bowie to start talking, and Steve Ray Vaughan was already on an upward trajectory to an extent. Uh, as Jackson Brown saw him at that show as well, and the next night Jackson Brown took him under his wing and they really started uh, getting somewhere together um, yeah it, it's it's pretty amazing that, that Steve Ray Vaughan was picked to do this album and I don't know if it would have uh, I don't know if he needed it to, 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 to shoot himself into the stratosphere as far as how popular Steve Ray Vaughan got but it didn't hurt um, yeah it, it's just amazing though that this guy that just made uh, an avant pop album, if you will, with uh, Scary Monsters. His next record, he has this blues guitarist on it. As, uh, the heat. Steve, you cut out there big time. Can you uh, go back to Stratosphere? Oh, Mr. Black, we lost uh, Mark. Oh, boy. There, he, We're all he's here. Back. Wait, no, here. Wait, he's there. I'm here. Are Mark, you here? there? Yeah, I'm here. Is Eric here? Uh-oh. Eric, can you yeah. hear us? I'm here. Can you, not, can you hear me? Not hear me? Can yeah. you hear me? Eric, can you hear Steve? I can hear Steve. Can you hear me? Yes. Eric, can you hear Mark? Hello. Yes, Hello. I can hear Mark. Well, we can all hear each yes. other. We're good. Yes, I can hear Mark. So, all right, we just had a little moment there. Steve, you were talking about the stratosphere. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if uh, uh, Steve Ravon and Eva David Bowie, but it didn't hurt. And I think it's pretty amazing that a guy that just made an album is uh, out there, Scary Monsters. Then he wanted to make a, a record that had some danceable hits, but at the same time, he picked a blues guitarist to be the lead guitar player, which is kind of a weird mix. I mean, sure, the whole Southern blues thing would uh, become more popular as the 80s went on, but it definitely wasn't you know where I'd start if I, if I was making some pop hits. So I think that was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, yeah this is... This is right before. Yeah, it's 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 definitely interesting. Yeah, and this is. It's just like the album itself has like a lot of new wave elements to it, and um, a lot of '80s pop elements to it, and then it yeah, you then, just get this like sheen of smoky blues over almost every exactly. Track. It's it's it's, it's an interesting mix, yeah. and I unexpected. I'd, I'd say that it almost makes that's how this album this album could be a lot more blue bland than it is, and I think Stevie helps out with that, and. I'm not going to go into the history of Steve Ray Vaughan tonight. Uh, I'll say this much. Uh, Steve Ray Vaughan, as you all probably know, died in the late 80s. He was 35. He released four albums while he was alive in the in the 80s. Each one of them better than the last, I think. And um, any cliches you might think of when you think of Southern Texas blues that came from him getting popular... I would not leverage against Steve Ravon. I think that uh, his albums are all very good. And I might be a little biased because my father subjected them to me all of the goddamn time. Uh, as a matter of fact, I texted my dad. I was going to try to do a little clip where I got him to talk about Steve Ravon. And he didn't have the time, which is fine. Cats in the cradle to this day. But... uh his response to my text was, uh, yeah, Stevie was good, 
but I'm refocusing on Robin Trower now. Check his videos. <laughs> so, uh, dad's really into Robin Trower again, and he's backed off Stevie. <laughs> oh, wow. But, so, essentially, he was like, call me when you talk about the uh, Trower of yeah, Power. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, with Stevie Vaughn, I, I, I suggest anybody give his albums a shot or his greatest hits. Uh, you're going to recognize some of them when you hear them. You're like, oh, yeah, there was this guy. Like the song Crossfire or, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> oh, God, what was his big hit? Uh, Pride and Joy. You know, like as soon as the first riff of Pride and Joy plays, you'll be like, oh, yeah, him. But I, I'm convinced that if you actually watch videos of him play, it makes you appreciate him more. Because when you see how he played and how quickly he moved his hands, it was pretty goddamn amazing. And um, he was a pretty humble guy, I think. Uh, he kind of reminds me of like if some of our friends became popular blues guys, they would just still be soft-spoken and shred. Um, I like him. He's, he's an interesting dude. I... I, I I wish he didn't die. That's my Steve Rivon four minutes. Definitely an interesting choice because up until then, like even through the, the Berlin trilogy and scary monsters, you know, he had these prog rock, like, like maestros. Um, you had your Frips and your, uh, blues. Um, and then he went with something, I guess, less, arty but um i may be more palatable but still nonetheless technically amazing with uh with stevie ray vaughn yeah. and um you can hear him all over this thing so it's and we'll cool. talk about it and if there's uh, if you're gonna make any time for just like one Stevie ray vaughn song i hate i hate to suggest it because it's a cover but it's a cover listen to his is uh his cover of little wing uh, uh the Jimi hendrix song <laughs> it is so good it's awesome uh nice. you can't deny it Anyhow, right. Steve Ray Vaughan. Who's who? Who else is on this album? Well, you got a uh, you got Nile Rodgers, obviously producing, but also playing bass. And Eric, who else is on this album? Um, so Nile Rodgers, he played more of that guitar rather uh, than the bass. Apologies. It was Carmine Rojas who played uh, the bass. Um. And also Bernard Edwards also played a little bit of bass. Um, but we've got SRV on lead guitar, uh, Omar Hakim, and Tony Thompson on drums, Sammy Figueroa on percussion, Robert Sabino on keyboards and piano, Stan Harrison on tenor saxophone and flute, Robert Aaron on tenor saxophone, Steve Elson on baritone sax and flute, Mac Golihon on trumpet and Frank Sims, George Sims and David Spinner on backing vocals. Um, and that's pretty much, you've got yourself a big, uh, combination if you will. But, uh, Bowie essentially didn't play a damn instrument on this album. He was just there for his pipes. And he, um, he really wanted, and he yeah. jettisoned everybody from the last like six albums. Yep. Yeah. He did. You don't have, you don't got Davies. You don't have Alomar. Um, you don't got Murray. It's all different people because he really it yep. just, yep. I, I, it, it, if you read around it, you know, it just seems like he really wanted for whatever reason to just like top the charts. I don't know what the, uh, the, the drive was here. He, there's a, 
uh, on my streaming service on on Amazon, there's this this thing just called David Bowie London 1983, and it's literally just a Q and A about this album that I listened to, and there's a lot of good nuggets in there. And he said, "Yeah, I want to make something." He's like, "I've been away a while. I've had a lot of changes in my life. I want to make something relatable. I want to make something positive." Um, it's funny. Uh, I the pushing ahead the dame website puts it perfectly. He had a persona during this era and he was going to be the cool CEO. Like he always had a suit and a tie and uh, a little bit of a ladies man. And he definitely became like the eighties, uh, the eighties businessman during this mm. time. And he was selling his image and to positive and negative results, right? Like there's some great moments on this album and there's some very, very, you know, just trying to get, you know, top the charts, like uh, kind of bland pop stuff happening too. Um, and he, and he's selling himself this way. When you hear him talk, he, he definitely wants to put out, like he wants to connect to people more and put out something positive, which sounds great. And as he explains it more, he's just trying to, trying to <laughs> find the lowest common denominator and, 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 and make him smile, which there's, that's honorable too. Yeah. I think that, uh, absolutely. Go ahead. Absolutely. No, no, that's all. That's all I was going to say. Yeah. I think this album's biggest crime is that, the music on it is better than what happened uh, afterwards. I think it set him on a trajectory to where there was diminishing returns of this album for like the next decade. Right. That's the biggest, right. the bigger problem here. Uh, like, like oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Like any, like um, any he, like fucking uh, Silicon Valley startup. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's the CEO in a suit starting strong, getting everybody excited. And then it just fucking, falls yeah, flat it, like he, he, but yeah it started strong he, does, he, sure. he starts to regain his footing of all places black tie white noise where he tried to replicate this and there's a couple of shimmers of hope there and then uh you know gets better from there but anyhow what uh mark did you happen to read any reviews for this album i did uh before i get into the reviews um just a couple of follow-ups on what you guys are both talking about uh, carlos alomar was approached to play on this record, but apparently he was offered a pretty bad fee for doing so. So he turned it down, but he did work on uh, the next Bowie record, which was tonight. And uh, he did play on the uh, serious moonlight tour. Um, a flip, a flip, to a flip side to that Mark, he played on the serious yeah. moonlight tour because Steve Ray Vaughn uh, couldn't get his act together at the time. Uh, yep. and, and, and Steve Ray Vaughn had uh, substance abuse issues and had kind of an entourage and he cleaned up later. A, a big part of his story is that he did get cleaned up and uh, some of his best songs were written after he, he sobered up, but he showed up for rehearsals for the tour and everyone was like, we can't deal with all that you got going on here. Um, but if you do Google Steve Ray Vaughn, David Bowie live, you can find rehearsals for that tour. And it's kind of fun to see Steve Ray Vaughn play stuff like, you know, Cracked Actor or hear it. I mean, um, anyhow, yeah, that was the inverse of that. And That's then cool. Carlos Alomar did replace him for the tour. So yep. what were you saying? Um, and then the second thing, you're right. This whole album really starts him on a tra trajectory because this album was such a huge commercial uh, commercial success. So he achieved what he was uh, setting out to do by creating something that was just like a torpedo missile for the popular charts. 
Um, Can I ask you I, yeah. really quick, I, just in that, um, there's a great interview with MTV right before this album dropped um, where he's kind of talking about, it's, it's just like that 1983 London interview where he's like selling his brand a lot. But then he turns it on the MTV, whoever it was, the VJ, and like, and it's, he's like, hey, what's up? You guys just came out a couple years ago and you only play black music from like 2.30 in the morning to 6 a.m. Hmm. And he basically calls them out on like whitewashing it. And the and the VJ is like, well, we have to appeal to our audience in Wisconsin. And, and, and Bowie just like looks at him like he's the fucking devil. And it's it's a great interview. Like if you just Google like, you know, Bowie MTV black music, you'll probably find that clip. And it is scalding. It, it, it's scalding. It's it's so good. I, I, I recommend. Yeah, I, cool. I've, uh, I've heard that anecdote before. I don't think I've ever watched it. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, but it's just from um, this era. So go on, Mark. Sorry. But to your point, um, because it was a big commercial success with uh, more mainstream audiences, um, a lot of critic music reviewers who had been watching Bowie's trajectory and especially all of the records that he had been releasing up to this point uh, were certainly more steeped in art um, and kind of the artistic craft of songwriting. Um, there was a few hits and misses, but a lot of it was just Bowie was considered a very uh, artist at the top of his game. And some critics kind of thought like, even though that he's Bowie's very embracing kind of the commercial uh, sense of music, um, he's still trying to make it as lyrically smart at the same time. Uh, that was a quote from uh, Time Magazine. Um, if you kind of look at uh, some of the other reviewers in the day, they both, so Ken Tucker, uh, writing for Rolling Stone, um, felt that the album sounded great, um, but the album as a whole was very thin um, and uh, just didn't really have much to offer in the way of substance. Um Looking back on it, though, I think at the time people were like, well, okay, this is something new for Bowie. He's certainly embracing going into more of a, a commercial sound kind of in that same vein of the 1980s uh, that you would get in the new wave and also a little bit of like Phil Collins, Wham, um, and kind of making a very pop sheen uh, version of the sound that he was trying to do maybe on Young Americans. Um but looking back retroactively, a lot of, uh, you know, artists have or reviewers have come around. Um, they've deemed like Rolling Stone gave it a four out of five. Um, uh, the Village Voice gave it a B. Chicago Tribune gave it three out of four. Um, uh, Encyclopedia of Popular Music gave it three out of five. So it's kind of in that same. It's a good record. Some people would say it's a classic. I without giving anything away. I mean, there is some undeniable singles off this record and I could see why uh, people put that in his list of classic albums. Um, but it's not one of my top five Bowie albums by any sense. I don't even know if it would crack my top 10. Um, but I think critics kind of understood and recognized the fact that Bowie was starting a whole new chapter and were intrigued with where his career was going to be going. But they also were like, this is kind of uh, disposable music uh, mm -hmm. for what his peers were kind of already doing. Yeah. Um, uh, our listeners have conflicted ideas. Also uh, David Faust 
all he you know all he says about it is that now Rogers is a great producer, and it's true. There's a unmistakable stamp of now Rogers on this album. Um, Nick Meyer says the the big three singles are fantastic. The rest is lackluster and forgettable. Um, it's too bad that a lot of people, when they think of Bowie, they think of this album because it's it's one of his. It's probably his biggest album. It's it was a massive blockbuster. Um, Chris Reed said, you know, he likes the 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 big singles uh, with Cat People or Modern Love being the favorites, um, and then some of his like uh, like uh, Without You is like something that could be like from Black Tie White Noise. Longtime collaborator Michael Komonos uh, talked a little bit about how he loves uh, Cat People and Modern Love. Um, he thinks Modern Love performance, Bowie's performance, um, is a, a less cold and more earnest than most of his previous tracks. Um, not his best album, but there's some really good moments. And then I started a conversation over uh, through the show through um, the David Bowie fan site, uh, fan group on Facebook, and it just kind of sparked a debate about people, um, you know, somebody claimed that Bowie, you know, kind of rejects this album now and and, and regrets it. Um, and then everybody kind of jumped on him. That's not true, and it's true. It's not true. It's not true. Bowie definitely wanted to make this pop album. Um, and even though it, it kind of snowballed into a bad era for him, um, I think he um, stands by this album. My experience with this album is I never, I mean, I knew the song, like the big songs, but I remember when I didn't have a car and Steve and I lived together off of like uh, Fifth Street, he would drive me around in this Camry and he had this cassette and, and, and we, and we played it often, uh, listened to it often. I remember when, um, you know, not to bring up old shit, Steve, but at one point you lost your job and you only listened to guns and roses for like uh, a month after, uh, while you were trying to find a new it's job. Probably the best month of my um, life. Yes. <laughs> it was a, it was the perfect soundtrack, but at some point uh, that was, that, you that was, started filtering that was in. That, I think I, uh, was inspired by, Mark and I's old next door neighbor at our duplex when I don't know what was going through his head that day, but, uh, this was after Mark, this was after the landscaper moved out when that, 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 that like WWF guy moved in and, uh, I don't know if his, his, his mom died or his girl left him, but he listened to, uh, Motley Cruz country road or not country road. What is that? Dad? But I, the home, home. Yeah. I'm on my way. Hey, hey. He listened to it on repeat all day long, very loudly. So uh, we all cope in our own ways, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. It's and no judgment. But at some point you started filtering in this cassette of Let's Dance. And you told me, hey, that's Stevie Ray Vaughn. Whenever the smoky guitar would show up. And I that, that did leave an impression on me. I, um, it's not until, you know, I, I married my wife. And this is one of her favorite Bowie albums that I listened to it in, in whole. So I, I'm pretty familiar with this one. Um, it's even after doing this deep dive, I don't have a, and I don't have a cr crazy good opinion of the album, but there are some songs that are undeniably just bangers. Like yeah. 100%. We'll get to our bolt rankings later, but this album is definitely a definition of the, uh, the parts being greater than the sum. So sure. And uh, is there anything else we should talk about before we talk about some of these songs? We can dive right into it. I'm All right. Gonna... Well, with that, we should dive into one of the greatest rock radio singles of all time with track one off Let's Dance. 
Modern Love. I, I can't I, I don't remember the first time I heard Modern Love but every time I listen to Modern Love I feel like I've been in love with this song my entire life it is uh, it, it's it, it's one of my favorite David Bowie songs it's definitely one of my favorite David Bowie singles if not maybe as far as singles go my favorite David Bowie single uh, I absolutely love this song I don't know what do you get uh, that's my overall impression of it. This, this, this opening track. Oh god, it's great! It's great! It's great! Uh, you've got, you've got the the sound just sounds like '80s new wave. It's upbeat. It start. It hooks you right off the bat. But it just like the best new wave songs. Like think of, um, you know, some New Order or The Cure. It is not a happy song. It sounds happy, but when you break down the lyrics. Um, you know, modern love walks on by, uh, modern love gets me to the church on time. Church on time terrifies me. It's like, it's, it's basically like he, there's this concept of love that he's supposed to feel at this time in his life. And he doesn't get it. He's, he's feeling lonely and he can't make love work. Um, and he can't make God work. And he's just making this like parallels to religion and, 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 and love. But it, the song is just a, it's got a, a spring in its step. It's peppy and, uh, and, uh, it's got some great just horns and reverby guitars and it's, it's just eighties, eighties sad pop. Yeah. But uh, done by our friend, but, but the, the, the lyrics are ambiguous enough to where it doesn't bring you down and no, not at all. With, you not know, at all. how just undeniably catchy the song is. The song is just, it is as catchy as it gets. And, uh, oh, absolutely. hundred yeah, percent. And, and, yeah. and even if he was singing about, you know, uh, reading an obituary for his dad, I still think you'd be hard pressed not to want to get up and dance to this track. It's a, it's, it's a great opening track. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I do agree with the fact that uh, it is an immensely catchy song. Um, and, uh, it's got, such earworms as you know kirch on time god and man you know I, I i do love that kind of back and forth interplay between in the in the choruses um uh it does re- kind of remind me uh this same year in 1983 i don't know if we covered it but sports by huey lewis in the news also came out i'm not a big huey lewis in the news fan first off but that album has some undeniable catchy songs like uh, if this is it, the heart of rock and roll, I want a new drug. Um, I mean, 
say what you will, but man, that guy can write a, a catchy pop song. And I feel that this would fit right in into that kind of 80s, early 80s sound of uh, a little bit of soul, um, a little bit of uh, new wave music. Um, you could certainly hear that modernization sound um, that came out of Little Richard. I don't know if it's kind of the call and response between the uh, the, the lyrics. Um, sure. Is it, I, really? I, I think of his Taco Bell but, song. But, one yeah. thing, but that is one thing. with <laughs> One of my problems with this track is they bury the piano in the mix. And there is some great boogie-woogie Little Richard uh, piano going on here. Great Balls of Fire type piano that you, sure. you need to strain to listen. And they should have brought that to the front of the song, I think. But what really does overpower this, it, um, I, I really like how the song starts with kind of like a like a uh, guitar kind of getting uh, Revved fired up. And then the drums are immensely or overpowering. They're coming in like a herd of elephants. And then you've got the saxophone blasts. Um, this is definitely Bowie at his more commercial best. Um, and when I first heard the song, like I think it was included on like a singles collection that took you through the years. And when I got to this era, it did take me a while to kind of warm up to this idea of Bowie just really embracing that 1980s sound. Because um, I did kind of think, oh man, this is somewhat kind of cheesy, but over time... I've just kind of fallen into the idea of like, this is great songwriting. It's very catchy. Bowie's singing very well. Everything is in its right place. Um, and there are some and, great lyrics. I love the, uh, it's not really work. It's just the power to charm. It's a great fucking and, and, line. Yeah. The delivery yeah, of it. I think yeah. delivery of the lyrics in the song are great. Uh, I, the, the way he sings that particular line is awesome. And to Mark's point, yeah, even the spoken word at the beginning. Yeah. I know when to go out and when to stay in yeah. and get things done. And even to Mark's <laughs> yep. point, yeah, no, there was a time where I was like, yep. this song is so 80s, Jesus. But much like how, uh, as a young comic fan, as a superhero kid, I had my phase where then I would only read, you know, adult comics. And then when I became an adult, uh, an older adult, I appreciated superhero comics for what they did well. It's the same thing. Eventually you go around to it and you're like, Hey, something can be extremely catchy. There's that's awesome that it was this catchy. And, uh, I think it's yeah. being catchy is an art in itself, I guess. Um, yeah, no, I, I, it's a strong opener and, um, like, yeah, you can't deny how catchy this song is. And honestly, I don't know what it is about this song, but like, if I try to sing along with the song, sometimes I get choked up because of just the overwhelming sense of just, musicality and catchiness and I don't know something about the song gets to me it, it triggers me emotionally I don't know what it is oh. and I, I don't
Well, no. Well, what I love about it is when you hit the chorus, there is the ch- there is the chant. You you have your 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 uh, you know modern love, church on church time, on time, and then yeah. God and man. Like God and the man. way the way the chant picks up the last lyric of the lyric before it and then carries on to the next chant. And then, yeah, the way it's just kind of like a call and response there. It's so perfect. It's now this fucking genius. This track triggers the Great same song. place for me. And it's the saxophone that, um, as a Bruce Springsteen fan, there's, uh, introspective artistic Bruce. And then there's very poppy Bruce and the E street band albums. And the sax work is not Clarence Clemens esque, but it's up there. And some of the sax blasts on this song just really just get me, man. I, I love it. Um, at the two minute mark, you can't, yeah. you can't, you can't deny it. Uh, this song actually also reminds me of something Mark said recently, where this is also another track where I think the Cure was like, "Oh, I like what he's doing here." And when the Cure gets a little poppier, I can kind of see some of this uh, in there. Sure, sure. The Love Cats, yeah. Which I texted you guys when I. Listen to, to Mark's cassette that he loaned me for my car that now has a cassette player. And I turned around on Love Cats. I'm fine with it. It's a great song. Yeah, it's a good. It is. Apparently, Tony Visconti uh, considered this song the one of the album's best. Oh, good, 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 good old Tony that, V. Giving credit. Yep. Giving credit amidst yeah. the bitterness. It's hard to deny this song, man. This song is fucking great. I love this song. I, I love Modern Love. I just... Yeah. I, this song makes me smile. You guys know it was, it was in my wedding. It was in my and, wedding. You know, it's a great song. We might have danced to it. I'm not that good of a dancer, but if I'm gonna dance, this song will make me dance. It's a good one. Uh, great. Fantastic. The album starts off great. It starts off super poppy, but you know what? It was the early '80s. That's what we wanted. That's what that's what we were getting, I guess. Um, yeah. And it was a big hit. It had a video. The video was all live footage from the. I love. Uh, I actually. I era. love the start of that video where uh, they're running out in slow motion to the dun 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 dun. Yeah. Bowie looking really actually healthy for Bowie. He, he like for a, you know a lot of people that have been following him. He 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 looked like he was back in fighting shape. He he looked pretty healthy. All right, well, unanimous praise for Modern Love, the third single off this record and just a great goddamn uh, 80s single. Now we're going to get we're going to get a little bit more Track 2. Um, this is going to be an interesting one to talk about. Track 2, Eric. What's that? It is Bowie's version of China Girl. Take it away. Yeah, there you have it. China Girl. We talked, we waxed poetic about China Girl 
when we talked about Iggy Pop's The Idiot. If you haven't listened to that B-side, please do. That meant a lot to us as a whole. Um, and China Girl was a highlight of that album. Um, Bowie clearly liked it a lot, but it wasn't just that. He, um, he knew there was a hit factor to that song, and there is. Um, and he also wanted to help his buddy. Iggy Pop was hitting the skids in 83, and he knew if he made a hit out of one of his songs, the royalties, he could help his buddy out. And so that was part of it too. And he did, he did. He made China Girl, and Nile Rodgers gave us and the train has left the station. We have a very different China Girl. And what was originally a song about three things. It was about a love story between Iggy Pop and the, and the affair he was having with a Vietnamese lady in a hotel he was staying as the literal story and metaphor for the Western... Uh, influence over the East and the corruption of the East. And also wrapped in that was allusions to drugs. Um, uh, that was what Iggy Pop was doing. And it's a masterpiece, as we've talked about. This takes the lyrics and sheens it up a little bit with uh, the 80s production. And it was a giant hit. This one also had a video. Um, the video can be deemed as very offensive to some people because at some point Bowie pulls his eyelids back and makes China face, uh, China eyes, uh, pretty offensive. He has claimed that the song is all about stereotypes. Um, that's why he did that. And then the, um, the, the actress in that video also does like a white male pig face. Anyways. I think it's probably forgivable if you look through it through that lens, but it doesn't change the fact that he was doing that. That And the, the, the Ching Chong guitar riff is 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 really something. Um, I much prefer Iggy Pop's version to this one. Um, that is a rock song, undeniable rock song. see why this one's a hit it's catchy as hell um especially that bass line they keep the bass line pretty much the same and that one just hooks you and drives you all the way through i think that, uh, think well to... obviously yeah the iggy pop version is superior uh quite a bit what's interesting about this to me is um the song kind of sums up the whole record um it starts out very superficial that that uh, Eastern-influenced uh, guitar plinking, uh, terrible idea. Terrible, I, bad. Doesn't even sound cool. Um, it starts off really bad. But around about about a minute and 20 seconds into it, when David starts singing the Marlon Brando line, it almost seems like at that point, yeah. he remembers the power of the original track. 
And the entire song, from that point forward for quite a bit, snaps into a more substantial place. Uh, the bass line gets a little bit more defined. And uh, when he starts singing about stumbling in the town and the swastika eyes, he really starts uh, just, there's more teeth to the track. And then... It's probably yeah, it's some of his best vocal better. work on the album. And then around the minute 220, there's another layer of rhythm guitar that comes in with the, you know, the uh, dun, 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 like you got the bass line doing that. And then like a, a guitar, a rhythm guitar pops in that wasn't there before that kind of sounds a lot like the Iggy Pop track. Um, and then around minute 330, when it all drops out and it's just the bass line, and then Steve Rivon comes in for a guitar solo. It's not doing the same thing that Iggy Pop's track did, but it's doing another version of that uh, that layering that Iggy Pop's track did do. It's a di- yeah. different version of that layering. And at that yeah. point, I was just I was just being an asshole like that during that part. I just kept thinking about I love like the repetition of the Iggy Pop version, how they keep building on that dun 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 dun, like like the 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 build up yeah. and the breakdown they, over they, and over again. Um, I was like, they do, yeah, they do yeah, another yeah, version of layering here with a different Go set on. of players. And uh, you got to get through the first two minutes of ugh, not goodness to get to it. And then, uh, you know, there's an outro guitar solo that I think just rips by David or by Steve Ray Vaughn. But it leads right then back into the end of the song goes back to the dun 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 dun. And I'm like, oh, God, you fuckers. You almost had it. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, the midsection of this track, I think, really gets somewhere important. And then they mess it all up again with the outro being that 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 ridiculous. Da, 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 da. So within this song is some epic moments, but I'll take you to mama in a second. But uh, I'm going to kick it over to Mark to see what he has to say. Um. So everything that Steve said, uh, I pretty much agree with 100%. Um, Going into uh, this song, I still remember Iggy Pop's version when we talked about that when we did our Idiot B-side. And um, I strongly do prefer Iggy Pop's version um, because it doesn't have quite the sheen that this one does. Um, Nile Rodgers is doing some really funky riff rhythm work. And I really do smile every time that Stevie Ray Vaughan comes in. It's a pretty kind of standard rock solo of the day. Um, he still plays it very, very well. Um, and I like little Bowie's seductive vocal thing going on. It's just a different, um, interpretation, um, from, uh, Iggy pop's version. Iggy pop sounds a little bit more desperate. This one sounds a little bit more seductive. Um, it's very pop oriented song. I do think that it deserves the credit it received for its place in his, in his best singles in his post career. Um, I don't really have anything else to add because everything that both of you have really discussed about this, I mean, the problematic kind of, um, chop suey type, you know, we're going over to the land of over there. Um, it's, you kind of wince a little bit, but I, I can see why he decided to go with that choice. Um, but just kind of looking at some of the other songs of the day, like Turning Japanese, um, I can't remember the name of that band, but you know what song I'm talking about, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. yeah. Sure, by the vapors. It, the way he explains it it, 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 you know, it's a satire and it's about, it's about showing the stereotypes and thematically that fits, sure. in, that fits into the whole West corrupting the East, but sure. when you just hear it as itself and you're not doing a deep dive into Bowie, um, that doesn't change the fact that there is a white guy that pulling his eyelids back to make Chinese right. in a video. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, mean I, if you're just kind of walking by the radio or walking by a TV with a music video on, you're like, what the fuck is this? Right. I mean, at the time it, it can play, but if you kind of look at it from now, um, things have obviously become more, and to its credit, it should be, um, more, we need to be a little bit more sensitive to sure. the differences uh, Right into yeah. cultural differences, and when you and understand, on, uh, when you look it up on YouTube, it's the uncensored, like you know, they call it the uncensored version. So, like, sure, know, clearly, it's it's gone through through some uh, checks and balances over the years. Right, but if you're just kind of casually like letting the music wash over you in this day and age, you'd be like, wow, that's kind of like a minstrel show kind of thing going on. But then there is some deeper subtext to the to the song itself, where he's not like stereotyping anything um he's actually doing quite the opposite sure it's just it's just one of those things that it's an odd choice that could be misconstrued as slightly racist <laughs> yeah yeah no it, you know? no no it's 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 nuanced for sure for sure sure yep but let's go on to the um, next track are we ready yeah let's do it let's dance So this is the title track. It also happened to be the lead single. Um, the album version clocks in at almost seven minutes, and the radio edit trims about three minutes of that uh, away. This is one of the few times in my life where I think I vastly prefer the radio. Is edit. that right? Do you prefer Sorry. the? Uh, we'll get into the reasons why, but uh, you know, real okay. fast, I do think that the funk production of Now Rogers really brings this song to life. Um, it does sound straight out of the early 80s in terms of that production style and even the instrumentation cho uh, choices. Um, but you could really see that Bowie was really trying to stay creative as possible in that framework. Yeah. Um, 
my one thing that I it, it is kind of puzzling as I did listen to this whole album on a pair of good headphones that Stevie Ray Vaughan's guitar lead is somewhat a little lower in the mix than the rhythm section. Um, I mean, you could hear it. It's not like you have to strain to hear it, but it is something that really isn't giving uh, enough presence that I feel that it deserves. Um, and it, speaking of listening to it on headphones, you really get some really cool um, panning and stereo effects uh, on this song as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Stephen, I'd, I'd like to know, I think the song is great. I do like the extended long seven minutes yeah. because just the places that it goes and I'm all for kind of these little jam sessions, but do you think that it's a little too much? Is that why you think that the radio edit serves it better? Yeah, no, that, that that's exactly why I, 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 I think it's a, a great catchy track. I mean, God damn it. So let's dance. Come on. But man, the, uh, the album version does something that a lot of albums from the late eighties and early nineties did, which I think is a, uh, extended jams that were just kind of like let the let 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 the uh, the drum machine and one you know guitar player just go for way too long and it just sounds like an inorganic jam to me uh the bump 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 that they it keeps going back into it just seems like it could be better done by half Ooh. i don't know and I'm a guy that loves long, drawn-out shit that doesn't need to go on forever. Uh, this track, for some reason, really loses me on the album version. So you feel I just think like the... a tad too repetitive then? It... Yes. Okay. And also, it sounds... And, 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 and it does kind of sound plastic. Um, it is very catchy, but those bongo drums and those horns don't really light my world on fire. And hearing them over and over again even though you've got some great Steve Ray Vaughn drip, uh, licking going on there. Um, I, I just think it, it, it could be cut down. I think I'd, I'd prefer the radio edit, which is rare for me to huh. ever say. Well, good to know that uh, Steve can be wrong from time to time because uh, <laughs> I, 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 like, I like the whole seven minutes. I, I prefer it. I mean, this song gets like the groove gets it. It's a weird song because it's called Let's Dance. The song, like the lyrics itself are very simple. Um, uh, but it, it doesn't justify seven and a half minutes. Uh, but somehow the groove gets to me because it's 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 so not a dance song. But but the little things that work kind of hook you in. Um, it, it started as a as a demo track. And I think after he died, Nile Rodgers released that demo. Fine, every time you go wrong, but that's okay up front, huh? This is a James Brown band. And it's crazy. Like, if you haven't heard it, I highly recommend you listen to the demo track. Because it's this guitar, like, it's just like a total chic, like... Yeah, he he, he dumbed it down. He, it's a it's a total funk guitar. And then yeah. uh, Erdal Zizklay was just doing this. Kizzle, Kizzle K. Yeah, yeah, he's doing this slap bass thing that Les Claypool would be proud of. 
it's just a crazy the original version is nuts and and totally worth hearing if you um, look up if you look up uh just look up now rogers talking about putting this track together there's actually a good npr uh interview from a few years back he talks about that that demo and how they just said we need to make this more basic and that's that's you know it went from streets of san francisco to just the very basic uh 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 catchy riff that, that niles plays which i think works out a lot better right um yeah so i mean i just i I like it. I like the the video. I think is a part of it too. I'm a big fan of this video. It's a hot, sweaty video where Bowie is in this like little pub in Australia, like, and there's a bunch of people on walkabout that find their way <laughs> into this little like hot and sweaty sandy bar while Bowie's playing. Uh, his shirt's unbuttoned. He's got a little tan, his big old blonde pompadour sticking up, and he's just singing and and, and it's a. Uh, it's, I don't know. It's just a fun video. It's kind of pulling together those world influences that he was doing on like Lodger and making it very, I don't know, very accessible. Yeah. The, um, the Bush pilots could be drinking in that same bar. You get that. Yeah, impression. absolutely. A hundred percent. He's also pretending to play C. Ray Vaughn's guitar parts. It's true. That, 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 yeah, that's, that's true. Um, there are some references to the end of the world and it's kind of like, ah, fuck it. Yeah, the world's about to end. Let's have fun. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a very simple song. I, it's very uncharacteristic of me to, um, I don't know, to get so into it, something like this, but I, I, I can't help it. It's so unconventional for a dance song that I, that I can't help but love it. And I love all seven minutes of it. Yeah. I, I think it's catchy. It's very catchy. And even though it's unconventional, I mean, the, the, the parts where it goes back into the, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, yeah. uh, you know, the twist, the twist and great. shout, the twist and shout. Little, yeah. Parts, Towns yeah. sings along to that. Cause it's, it's that recognizable and easy to sing to. Yeah. Um, and it starts yeah. with that. That's crazy. It starts it with the climax of twist and shout. Like that's your opening, like eight bars. Yeah. And then it comes back to it later. You know, it's a, uh, uh, I, no, it's a, even though I don't think the seven minute version is my favorite version, I think it's a, it's still a great song. It's let's dance. Come on. Yeah. It's, yeah, a, it's fantastic. I and, enjoy it. And I love that delivery of the put on your red shoes and dance the blues. There's a, one, yeah. of, the, one of the times he sings that's just so like herky jerky. I love the, uh, you know, and, uh, and you'll tremble like a flower. That's a great part too. Yeah. It He's is pretty is amazing. This is the song that put him over the top. Like, this is why we probably have this podcast. You know, I, I, I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. He wouldn't have gotten as popular as he did and make many of us discover the rest of his back catalog if it wasn't uh, for this this track. This, okay, for whatever this, reason, this, yeah, yeah, this, yeah, this yeah, was yeah. The, the, the song. This is his, uh, I mean, that, that'd be fair to say, like, this is his uh, thriller. This is his, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This yeah. is crazy. Yeah. This is the song. It's true. I mean, even though I, 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 it'll be fun at the end of this season when we kind of rank our top 10 Bowie songs or even top five, who knows what the fuck we're going to do. But I'm, I'll be curious to see if this song appears on any of our lists. Um, it's a great song. I, I can't deny it, but he's released so many great songs. Uh, but you're right. I mean, this is the one that just, put him into become a household name for people who had, you know, thought that he was weird 
uh, androgynous figure from yeah. Ziggy Stardust, and all of a sudden he comes out with this thing, and yeah. you're just like, "Who is this fucking guy?" It's still you weird know? though. It's 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 on paper, it's not a conventional '80s dance song. No, like Modern Love no. is much more catchy than this song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me. But, but, you know, yeah. by far. But yeah. but there's it's it's such a strange song, but it's got a hook to it, and I can't deny it. It's fantastic. It's got some good horns, man. It's got some good horns. I'll give it that. Yeah, it, it it the song goes places. It really does. I mean, um, I, I don't know. It's it's a it's a, it's an all timer, but I don't know where it's going to land in my final list. But it's it's always well appreciated. Whenever it comes on um, anywhere, I'm always happy to hear it. And and yes, I, I will reiterate another triumph of Stevie Ray Vaughan solo. Just just his solos don't ever last that long in this album, but I think they're, they're used to good effect. Right. Yep. All right. So I think we should go ahead and go into track four, which is the end of side one. If you're listening to this on vinyl, um, that is called without you. Let's hear a little bit of that. Sure. Did you want me to start? Yep. <laughs> All right. No problem. So this song for me is where the album starts to hit the brakes a little bit. Um, the first three tracks, um, there's definitely some good times that were had. And this one for me, in my opinion, is just kind of a meandering song uh, with Bowie singing at a really high range. Um Steve Ray Vaughan seems a little bored with it too, but he's not like phoning it in, but just the, he's just kind of poking along with some of his guitar flourishes. Um, I was surprised to see that this was actually released as a single. Um, it's just not a, it's not an outright bad song. Like I could, it's fine. Like I would prefer this song over any, uh, over most of what was on a never let me down. Um, but it's just kind of thrown at the end of side one. Um, I, that's all I can really, really say about this one. It just doesn't, doesn't really do anything for me. It's harmless, but at the same time, it's just kind of like, to your point, it, it, kind of off mic. Steve was saying this this album would probably be a Stone Cold classic if it was an EP, and I would maybe just imagine that this is one of the albums that you would just remove. Yeah, this is. This this album is half singles, and then the, I mean this album's only like what eight nine tracks long, and yeah, eight tracks, it's literally yeah. okay, it's eight tracks, right? It's it's literally half yep. singles, and then the other half is four songs that are middling at best, and this one's my least favorite. Um, the other yeah, the, the other ones have too. qualities in different ways that we'll get into. This song is hard for me to even talk about. I find it very just middle of the road. Uh, it definitely, I mean. I hate to say it if, uh, you know, we're talking about David Bowie always has some tracks that point to where he's going next. Um, this song and the last song point to where he's going next in different ways. This song points to very yep. banal Bowie that we're going to get on most of never let me down. 
on some of tonight, which uh, I think is better than it gets credit for, to be honest with you. And um, yeah, that just it does not do much for me. I, I don't know. It's funny. It's funny you you say that. Be, this in the last song because those both remind me of Chic songs guest starring David. Yeah, the Bowie. last song I'm talking about, the last track on the album, not the last song we talked about. No, yeah. okay. No, I know, I, I know, I know. Yeah. No, 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 I know. Yeah, yeah. The last, like you shake it, and then and this one, both kind of seem like Chic songs that Bowie just kind of showed up for. This song is a ballad, but it's got the Chic back out background singers. Um. And uh, yeah, it's I mean, it's definitely like a R&B song and he's singing on it. And his vocal works not bad. It's pretty good. Um, the song itself is very simple. Uh, Just when the best things in life are gone, I look into your eyes. There's no smoke without fire. You're exactly who I want to be with. Without you, what would I do? But it, there, there's no subtext. It's a love song. It's very sweet. It's very simple. Very basic. Um, and it doesn't, I, I barely, I mean, even though he's singing over the whole thing, there's no real Bowie stamp to this song. There's nothing, there's none of that interesting songwriter work happening here. Yeah. Oddly enough, I think the most interesting part of this song for me is the production. It has an interesting sound. It's not complex, but it's the, the levels on it are, um, the, the, and the echo effects are, you know, they catch your ear for a minute, but then. You're about a minute into the song and you're like, this isn't going anywhere. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 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 So low, low point of the album so far by for sure. Not necessarily banned, bad, just bland, bland, boring. Right. All right. Well, let's flip the disc over and let's listen to Ricochet. The world is on the corner. So Ricochet, while it also is not the highlight of the record by any means, I do at least find this song interesting. Um, it, oh, for yeah, sure. It moves, it moves at a strange pace, and it is not a typical song structure. It's It's got like some bongo drums, and David Bowie sings a couple lines, and everybody just says, Ricochet! Ricochet! It's uh, it's not conventional by any any sense of a you know a song you'd find on a record that's full of singles, and unfortunately, you know, this is not the same Ricochet that Faith No More wrote years later, which is a fantastic song, but it's uh, sure it's not bad at all, and um, I, I don't know if I'd put it on a top fifty David Bowie songs mix, but as far as this album goes, at least it's interesting. Uh, uh, what do you think, Mark? Yeah, this is a wild one. Uh, it this song really did grow on me over time. Um, I don't, I'm not like madly in love with it, but I do really appreciate what's going on here. 
Um, you got some menacing spoken words delivered like an old radio transmission underneath the choruses, which, you know, again, makes for some great headphone listening if you're really kind of just trying to pick things out. Um, it is kind of like a little jazzy, funky number that uh, has a little bit of salsa thrown in there. That could be just the bongo drumming. Um, Steve Ray Vaughan's guitar solo uh, seems to be in conversation with that bongo playing. So I think musically, there is a lot to kind of appreciate here. Um, it is kind of a textured song in that way. Uh, but lyrically you're right there's not a whole lot going on like you said he loves to you know repeat that line ricochet um and it's not the end of the world you know i it's some of those little stabs that he's thrown in in there make it for me like this is it's an interesting little experiment here um that's still trying to be as commercially sounding i'm sure that those who picked up this record for the hits that you got on the first half of the record were probably kind of confused by this one and they probably thought it was filler but I do appreciate the artistry that's going on in this one. So I don't hate it. Um, I think it, it has certainly grown on me in terms of kind of the texture that it provides. It grew on me too. It's It's got some atmosphere, which I cannot say about the previous track. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a little song about like kind of like the plight of the working man. Um, sound of thunder, sound of gold, sound of evil, breaking parole, march of flowers, march of dimes. These are the prisons. These are the crimes. Um, I like it quite a bit. Uh, yeah, it's it's got some like reggae moments to it. Um, the I love I love that the like the end of the world part. I think that's it's a lot of fun. Uh, I, I have to give credit to Pushing Head the Dame for a great little analysis. You know, Bowie refers to this as the beginning of his um, Phil Collins years. And uh, they mentioned that Genesis, the band, they were very poppy at this point with Phil Collins taking over. But they would make sure every album, no matter how poppy it was, they would always have a prog rock song, one, on every album to give, pay credit to their past. And this was kind of Bowie's one, like, art rock song to, to give credit to his past. Um and once again, that's a total ripoff from the Pushing Head the Dame website, but I, I like that analysis because it is, it is, it's almost the most interesting musically um, on the record. So anyways, it's, it, it, it's fun. It adds atmosphere and uh, it definitely, you don't know what's happening next every measure. So I appreciate it for that. Steve, do you have anything? All right. All right. We can go ahead no, and move on. I, I, I said my piece on this track. Um, all right. So let's move on to A Criminal World. Criminal World, I do have something to say. And this was the biggest grower on this album for me. Um, 
I listened to this album a few ways. You know, I've listened to this album for decades now, occasionally. Never thought much of this track. But for critical analysis, this was the one that went from a, eh, it's okay, to, ah, yeah, fuck, I think I, I really like I, this song. I thought uh, I was either of you have a similar reaction. The first reaction? few moments of steamy guitar work, I was like, I don't know. Oh, fuck. This is great. This song has a lot of atmosphere. This is this is great. I, I got into it, and then I found it was a cover. Metro. That's right. The original version is really cool. That makes me want to listen to that band a little bit more. They're they're of the the kind of Roxy music '70s, uh, you know, kind of glammy fashion rock uh, genre. That reminds me, I meant to tell you guys, uh, Rogue Wave, that band, does a really good cover of Modern Love. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th- this track, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't really know what to make of it. I don't know what to make of those flutes, but I think the bass line is, uh, it takes a step, it takes another step, and then it goes for a walk and doesn't really stop. And... It's not too complicated of a baseline. I think Mark could even play it, but uh, I think the baseline really holds this track together. I think it's a it's a sparse but well developed track. Yeah, I I, uh, I kind of like how the song starts with the guitar kind of tiptoeing into the room. Uh, it makes for like a pretty interesting like okay, what what's this all about? And um, I basically have in my notes the baseline goes for a walk just like you said and then um, Steve Ray Vaughn lays down some of that uh, patent blues hammer and uh, I also would be remiss to say that Nile Rogers does some really good plunking along with his uh, rhythm guitar yep um, so yeah no it's a good song no the uh, song has some good like subtle rising action and part of that's from Nile Rogers uh, rhythm guitar yep is great and uh, yes, yeah, D. Ray Vaughn around minute one, I timestamped it, 135, he steps in and does some of his best work on the album, I think. Um, yeah, it's a cool song. It's a, it's a sleeper. I, I, I dig um, it. Uh... I, like, I feel like, and I'm not just saying this because of the criminal world, cool world, but I feel like when he was making like the cool world, black tie, white noise, era Bowie, he was probably thinking he was doing this. But yeah. it didn't sound like this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the song itself is like a Bonnie and Clyde type song with some uh, some bisexual overtones. And I once again, I'm going to rip off Pushing Head the Dane because I think it's a fair criticism that they... That, uh, Bowie, at some point in 1983, he did an interview with Rolling Stone where he was like, the headline was, David Bowie is straight! And he said that he'd never been gay and that he really regretted ever saying he was bisexual. And there's a lot of ways you can read into that where it was like, you know, maybe he shouldn't have co-opted a lifestyle or, or, or whatever. But this was also during the Reagan era and, you know, AIDS was starting to come up and gay was such a dirty word that like Bowie had a, maybe a moment to not, go that route and he distanced himself. And I'm not saying he, I'm not saying there was any malintent there. It was just for timing. 
that this article uh, on Pushing Head the Dame makes a pretty fair point that he had an opportunity to not distance himself so much and, and he, he chose the wrong path uh, when it came out. And this song itself has some bi- like bisexual overtones. So it's, it's, it's his way of very, very subtly still staying in that realm of ambiguity. Um, but I just thought I'd bring that up. Uh, and fair criticism, but, uh, this song, this song, uh, in my opinion, this song is a definitely like in the top four tracks for sure. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a kind of a surprising track for me. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, uh, just like the last one, this one, like I think Eric said, it's, it's a grower and you just kind of got to like, just let it wash over you. It's a good one. Um, well, with that, I think we should put out some fire by listening to Cat People. Don't Two versions. Know my name. Well, you've been so long. And I've been putting on fire. Who's leading off? I'll, 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 oh, okay, Eric, go ahead. All go. right. So in uh, 1982, um, Paul Schrader released the film Cat People. And I had the pleasure of watching it last weekend because I knew we were going to talk about it. So that means, Eric, that even if you didn't listen to it separately, you watched the movie so you heard the whole soundtrack. Yes, I did. Because I got to tell you guys, I didn't learn until today that if you have time, listen to the entire soundtrack for Cat People. It's fucking awesome. It's Giorgio Marauder who was like a Italian producer and he produced a lot of disco stuff. And if you talk to anybody and our uh, recent guest, Joe Vieira actually turned me on to some of his instrumental work. He produced a lot of disco and in my head, I say, I don't like disco, but the, his Italian influence on like Donna summer songs and stuff like that. There's a great live video of Donna summer singing and him playing live. And it is no doubt just like incepting electronica it's it's pretty amazing well, he, yeah he was an interesting guy uh, i mean uh, uh uh i mean he also had influences uh, elsewhere i mean uh, well he did a remix of juke joint jezebel by kmfdm oh. but also uh you know shooter jennings made a whole album about his songs called for giorgio um where you'll actually have Marilyn Manson on that one doing a cover of Cat People, by the way, which I'll talk about more in a second. Fantastic. And obviously, back to Daft Punk, there's that weird connection here. Daft Punk worked with Nile Rodgers on... Uh, uh, what was the album for they had Get Lucky on it? Uh, Rapid Eye Movement? <laughs> What's that called? No. <laughs> well, it's a, a exploratory or uh, something. I can't remember. You have, to, you have to drop it in, Eric. Yeah. But on that same record, they did a song all about Giorgio Moroder. I think they named it after him or something. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. And, and, and the yeah, soundtrack's his, great. His fingerprints did are out Did you guys there. watch that movie? 
I did not. Mark? Cat people? I, yeah. No, I, I never have. I saw it. I saw it when I was a kid with my uh, cool aunt that showed me things I shouldn't have seen yeah. yet. But I have not watched it's very, it. In like yeah, it's very years. steamy. Natasha Kinski is 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 naked for half the movie, um, but the cast is amazing because it's it, it's basically like she finds out she has a brother and she goes and it's Malcolm Adele and he is so sleazy in this movie because he just apparently like he's a werecat and the curse is he will continue to be a werecat and turn into a panther at night and kill people until he fucks his sister like that's the premise <laughs> it's a ridiculous premise and malcolm mcgall apparently only wanted to do this movie because it was so sleazy he only wanted to do erotic thrillers like that was his genre in the uh, in the 80s um it takes place in new orleans uh, i mean yeah, I know, I know Caligula and all that, but it, it takes place in New Orleans. Oh yeah, Calig- Caligula and uh, you know uh, Clockwork Orange sure. and Star Trek gen- Generations. Sure, I mean, of course. yeah, yeah. No, he's a sleazy dude. It takes place. Wing in Commander. <laughs> off screen, you don't, you don't know what Doctor Julian Saran was doing off screen. <laughs> Wagging his dick. Um. It's in New Orleans. It's it's a beautiful film. It look it's great. Uh, it's funny. The uh, there's a bunch of there's a gang of zoologists that are chasing them down, and it's John Hurd, who's the dad from uh, Home Alone. It is um, Annette O'Toole, who was uh, in the Superman movies and married to Michael McKean in real life, and uh, Ed Begley Jr. And they're all chasing them down. It's it's a crazy cast uh anyways it's i actually really enjoyed the movie i was i was surprised because it, it it does seem at some points like you're watching some like skinamax softcore softcore uh you know thriller but it's actually a pretty decent movie anyways the bowie Did you say who was directed by uh paul schrader yeah that's wild yeah you know who that is right oh yeah yeah, yeah. he gave us yeah. such films like autofocus smile um he gave us uh you know, uh, what else? A cruising, right? Well, he gave us a, yeah, but you know what? He was a screenwriter before he became a director and he did taxi driver, um, raging bull, um, uh, yes. Bringing out the dead. That's right. Uh, all those movies, American gigolo, which he did write and direct, but yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 you're no, you're no, you're spot on. No, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Uh, I think Paul Schrader, I think when he's directed, he can tiptoe in the sleazy a little bit. This movie is definitely an example of that, but there's enough, there's enough cool parts to this that it never feels very dirty when you're watching it. It, 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 It's kind of good. Um, But let's go to the song, right? You, uh, the theme. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Eric, Eric. Yeah. The album you're trying to think of, you were close, buddy. It was Random Access Memories. R.A.M. Not R.A.M. Not Rapid Eye Movement, but you were you were you were close. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, all right, so you've got the soundtrack version of Cat People, which is completely different than than the album version. Um, I, for one, and I know texting with Steve, we're our simpatico on this. It's superior. I don't know where you stand, Mark. Um, it's uh, It starts with some heavy synth work. 
Bowie just gothing, gothing out, vamping out as he sings the song. And then when it kicks in, it's just, it's just more dramatic. It's, it's a little bit more dramatic. This song goes way more places in the album version. Uh, I'm a big fan of the soundtrack version of Cat People. And this is the one that was used in, of course, Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, it was, it was used to great effect in Inglorious Bastards. I think uh, a lot of people got reminded of how good that song is from uh, that movie. Um, yeah, I, I think this song, I, I think this version is superior, but I do not think the other version is inferior. Um, but yeah, you can't, you can't beat the 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 slow uh, the the like the 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 bamboo sounding drums in the beginning. In those pulsing synths, um, it's, it's, it's the the version from the movie Cat People sounds unlike anything else David Bowie's ever done, in my opinion. It's yeah. it's so moody, so atmospheric, so slinky, so dirty. Uh, I I really think it's a, it's an awesome track. Peter Murphy could have been so longs with the with the with the vocoder over it. It's just. Uh, Marauder knew how to use a vocoder when he when he implemented it on people, and it's done a great effect uh, in parts of this track. Yeah, I, I dig it. I, 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 I feel like this. Uh, I don't know why they chose to re-record it, or actually, I do. We'll get to that in a second. But I don't think it would have been a bad idea to put this original version on this album to have it have more of a a varied sound. I don't know. But Mark, how do you feel about the uh, original version of Cat People? By the way, Paul Schrader wrote Last Temptation of Christ. He did. Yeah. He did. He sh- so he's a big Scorsese another... collaborator. He is. So um, the soundtrack, the Giorgio uh, Moroder version from the 1981-1982 soundtrack uh, does stomp the holy hell out of the one that's found on Let's Dance. Thank you. There's no denying it. Yeah. Uh, the... Uh, I've in my notes I call it the GM version with uh, because of Giorgio uh, Moroder uh, being on it. It just comes on slowly with that ton of atmosphere, and it's just then kicks off like you know it's just an all time Bowie classic. Um, it's so good, and not to get a little too ahead of ourselves, but just kind of comparing it to the version that's found on Let's Dance. Uh, one on Let's Dance is a little bit more faster paced. I mean, it just comes spilling out everywhere.
right to the uh, uh, to the fireworks factory. And I, I actually, it, it's funny you say that. I said my only problem with the other version is that David Bowie sings. He rushes through it like he knows it's a cover song. I don't know, you right. know, I don't know what he's doing. Yeah. Right. I, I think Bowie's performance on both, I do give him credit on both for both being strong. Um, but the just the original is so damn good. It's a, it's a it's an absolute beast of a of a song. Um, but yeah, that's all I really have to say. I mean, it's the faster tempo in the Let's Dance version is uh, you're it's like they're rushing through it rather than giving it the 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 room to breathe, which I think it just is much more effective on the Giorgio Moroder version. Um, and apparently he did a version without Bowie's input, right? With just the instrumental. Right. Yeah, no, if you, uh, on the, well, no, but on the soundtrack, they revived that melody quite a bit. So I don't know if that's what you're talking about. Um, I think that soundtrack's definitely worth listening to all the way through. There's, there's not a very sexy story as to why that's two different versions, but, um, Giorgio Moroder's label was MCA and they would not license the song to EMI to release it on Let's Dance, so they had to re-record it. That's it. Nothing nothing, uh, nothing crazy. Well, I'm kind of glad they did. I mean, a couple more things about the original is the drum breakdown at the three minutes, the doom, 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 and then there's a cat yowl. It's fucking awesome. And... The, the the guitar riff starts going down 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 down. See these tears so blue. It's just fucking masterful. Yeah, it's great. And uh, I don't know if you guys noticed. There's like a space moog at the end of the outro of the original version. That's kind of kind of sounds like uh, ashes to ashes style, which I think is a, a fun little similar sound there. And his delivery in the original version it make, it make, it makes me feel like he revived the uh, Thin White Duke. I think. The, the vocalization of the original version could fit right uh, sonically, musically, no. But the vocals and the delivery and the iciness could definitely be off station to station. Oh, yeah. And, that, and that's when Marauder yeah. was was breaking out as well. So it makes sense. Yeah. Um, it's cool when you watch the movie. It's the right. It's right off the bat. Opening credits. The song is playing and you get like some weird like it looks like Mars and these Panthers are running across it. <laughs> it's just a crazy visual it's great it's great uh, I, I i really do recommend this movie and i'm very shocked that i'm saying that but it, it was a good time <laughs> now I, I think i think the album version it's it's warranted i think it's fun i'm glad there's two versions to be honest with you i think uh steve ray vaughn has another fucking guitar solo just rips around uh, the two minute mark and then again he comes back for another little mini solo around the three minute mark Everybody should give a give a chance, and um, I I I liked it uh, when he when they first say putting out fire, they they layer it with a some kind of weird echoed effect, which is kind of fun, very tinny and eighties, and um, even that the way it opens with a dun 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 da dun 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 da dun, and then those calypso keyboards, I kind of think that's fun. I kind of like those keyboards. The album version is like the Taco Bell drive-through version of the song. You, yeah, you'll, you'll get through in a couple like minutes. Yeah, no, yeah. I, as do I. You'll get through in a couple yeah. minutes. It still feels good as far as this album's concerned, but it, it it's nothing compared, and those, compared and, to the original. But no, it's nothing compared to the originals. 
if you never heard the original, you'd probably be like, oh, this song's all right. And uh, also the Calypso keyboards, again, a harbinger of where he's going to go later. They sound straight out of the album tonight. And when we talk about tonight, I'll bring that up again. So there you go. The uh, the movie version is far superior. I think it's the all-timer. The album version, eh, it's okay. And yeah. uh, Marilyn Manson's version with Shooter Jennings is worth seeking out. It's got some electric fiddle. The Glenn Danzig's version off of the lost tracks of Glenn Danzig is not worth listening to. I am sad to say, uh, it definitely sounds like they, uh, they, they left the record running and they were just trying to uh, tune their guitars. Not good. You know, Danzig's releasing an all Elvis album, which I feel like is your wheelhouse, Steve. Well, it should be in all our wheelhouses. That sounds perfect to me. Yeah. All right, last track. Shake it. Shake it. This zany ass song to me sounds like all the goofball songs that are off. Never let me down. I, I don't know what was going on here. Uh, uh, maybe Oingo Boingo, like, owed David Bowie a favor. So they gave him this track. It sounds like Zapp and Rod. It's it, Zapp and Roger. It, it sounds like chic. It's, 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 it's you got your funky guitar and bass and you got your you got your uh, pitch shifter synths going on it and then Bowie just shows up to spit a couple lines out I mean this does not sound like a Bowie song at all it sounds like now Rogers and his buddy is jamming and Bowie's like yeah I'll throw some shit over that's his song Mark what do you think about Shake It Shake It is a very of the time song um I think it it's a different take on modern love um, and not even coming close to the catchiness and just pure songcraft of modern love. Um, this just doesn't hold any water to it. Um, you definitely get the call and response thing of shake it, shake it. What's my line? Um, but uh, it, it kind of that, that, that part's what, that part. I'm sorry to. to yeah, no, no, but... go for it. Yeah. That shake it, shake it. That's my. That sounds to me like one of those weird ass tracks. I've never let me down. Uh, right. Exactly. Or or yeah. Kingdom Come or the Labyrinth. Like that's Bowie. Like one of Bowie's personas is he wants to be one of the supreme back backup singers. Like that. Like and that's and that's him. You can hear him in there. Like that's my so the Labyrinth thing. Yeah. This is this song sounds like Chili Down. Uh, yes. This, yes. This is definitely yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, I can definitely see those like red and orange goblins taking their heads off and singing to this song. Yeah, now you mention it. Yep, definitely. Yeah. Yep. There um, is an extended version of the song that goes on for about five more minutes, Steve. You'd probably love it. 
This is a stupid verse, stupid song to end the album on. I'm sorry to just. Why would you end with this? End with cat people, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah. It, why this? Yeah. It's such a threat. The lyrics, I feel like a sailboat adrift at sea. It's a brand new day, so when are you going to phone me? Like, the, like, uh, <laughs> there's not much to it. There's no there's no art artistry to the lyrics in this song at all. Like, once again, I think Bowie walked into a room. Niall and his band was jamming, like, their very funky sheet kind of thing. And he's like, all right, I'll just let me, turn, press record. I'll just throw something over it. It's a, it's a very throwaway song. And like you said, with Never Let Me Down, Bowie would go into this phase for a while where there's always going to be a couple songs where you feel like he, he just showed up, press record, and just did like one take, like a one take wonder <laughs> that no uh, on a song that nobody would ever talk about again. And this feels like that. So what a... That's Shake It, the closing. They talk about ending with a fucking wet noodle of a track. Um, yes. We're going to get into uh, our next episode will be about Ziggy Stardust Motion Picture. It'll be about, uh, what is it, Ball? Ball EP. It'll be about Serious uh, Moonlight. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's. It'll be Serious Moonlight with some live albums. We got we have too much stuff to talk about. We'll make it a little another bonus episode. But Eric, is there any like bonus tracks off this album or remixes you want to bring up? I'll talk about that during the bonus. Uh, I, I kind of already brought him up while we talked about him, but if there's anything else, I'll bring him up during the during that B-side. All right. So from this era, we've done an Under Pressure episode. We've done Let's Dance Proper. And then Bowie had so much going on, there'll be one more little, little episode. But this album right here, let's rank this record. Eric, what do you think? Uh, I would give this one... A 2.5 out of five right in the middle smack dab in the middle. The, uh, the high highs are fantastic and there's, but there is too much uh, middling going on to make it uh, elevate past the halfway point 2.5 out of five. And, and that's why I will also give it a 2.5 is the middling, but also it's only eight tracks and four of them I think are worth your time. All the singles are good enough to make it, good enough but then the other shit's so boring that you're like why am i here so and then even with the singles i mean which I, like i i think i defended uh china girl more than you guys did it still has uh, you know quite a bit of fluff to it so 2.5 it, it's his most popular album of all time sales wise but it's it, it's not artistically lighting my world on fire mark I'm a little more generous in my ranking. I, I give it a three out of five, um, just um, barely edging you guys out. I think uh, some standout tracks are Modern Love, China Girl, even though Iggy Pop's version is better. Um, Let's Dance. I appreciate Ricochet quite a lot. Uh, Criminal World and Cat People, I didn't really give it marks because of how great the uh, original soundtrack version is. Um so I, I gave it a little bit of a, uh, a boost in the, when I first heard this, I probably would have scored it a two. Um, but after just kind of div digging into it, it, there's this song make this album generally makes me happy and it goes by pretty fast, um, that there's not a whole lot of parts where I'm just groaning and looking at my watch for it to end, even though shake, it's not great. 
without you is not great. I give it a three out of five. Hi, Lennox. We just got done talking about Let's Dance, the 1983 album. Um, I know it's one of your favorites. How many bolts would you give it? I would give it a five out of five. Really? Why do you Why do you think it's a perfect album? I mean, that's 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 great. It's a great album because it has really good tracks, and I think that, um, co- contrary to common belief, actually most of them were actually his original songs. As you can know, Cat People and China Girl, he actually helped write in the original ones and he covered them only criminal world was actually a cover and i my favorite song would be let's dance on the album but my favorite song would be cat people if if you can count the soundtrack version oh wow astute astute observations yeah the generally making you happy i like that because if it was the modern love single i'd give it a, a five that uh that, that I mean, that that song should be a rising tide to lifts all boats, and it, I, I, it almost makes me want to rethink my my grade, but I won't. But Modern Love, can't beat that track, man. So good. Um, all right, Eric, where do we go now? All right, let's see. Uh, two, which is actually three. shook his hand and made my way back home man who's the world I searched yep. for oh there we go land. finally gonna uh, by the way the way we roll the dice now since we asked Eric to uh, re- redo it when he says well it's this number but actually it's this number I get a uh, pre-call-in show vibes from the Mr. Show sketch <laughs> um, you know yeah, yeah don't we call were, in we're, right now but we want to know your opinion <laughs> yes we got an old an only uh, but a goodie a little manners of the world which i have no exposure to except for the title track so i'm pretty excited to talk about it i've got quite a bit of exposure it'll give us a reason to talk about nirvana which is always fine with me and this is the the oldest album we have left isn't it uh pretty much because uh, then the oldest one after this is going to be aladdin sane true so yep yep we still haven't done that one It'll, it'll be it'll be this Aladdin saying young American young Americans heroes heroes tonight the labyrinth soundtrack outside Earthling hours toy and reality are all that's left we got we got some we got some fun ones we got some fun ones yeah all right well well we did let's well, dance it's weird that I'm I, I cheated and I listened to tonight I'm 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 more excited to talk about tonight than you guys would ever believe. <laughs> Well, that'll be exciting because I, I mean, right. I have no exposure. I mean, I've probably listened to that one maybe twice in my lifetime. So that'll be interesting to dig into. But oh. uh, we're not there yet. We're going to talk about The Man no. Who Sold the World, the next album or the next episode proper. But before we get to that, we're going to throw another B-side out there for you folks to listen to for some of the uh, odds and sods of the Bowie era during this Let's Dance Um part of his career we get we get to discuss the guitar solo from the live version of the ziggy stardust motion picture for moon age daydream oh boy that'll be a time that'll be a good time yep uh so until next time uh this has been mark eric steven yes they were all sipping a a beverage just to give you guys a little bit of gravitas (laughs) <laughs> um, but we all 
hope that we brought you closer to pod. Oh, losing you. Don't.